begin by telling you this. Ed Samberson, I don't know if everybody knows that name, but Ed is a wonderful brother in Christ, and um, uh, Ed has been a friend and brother for many of us for many years here at Impact. He's been part of our safety team, which means he has been one of those who walks around and makes sure that things are are safely done and all that. He's told me he does that mostly because he loves taking care of the kids and making sure that the children downstairs are protected and all of that. So he's part of that. Uh, he and his wife, Peggy, last year celebrated their 61st wedding anniversary. How often do you hear that? Isn't that pretty awesome? Um, Ed uh, also has loved um, uh, dog sledding and the Colorado mountains. He's an engineer, a hardworking kind of guy. He loves his family and friends. Um, and, uh, and it's just an incredible guy. And he is now enjoying his ultimate home with the Lord because five days ago he went home to be with the Lord after a lengthy battle with cancer. And with that being said, let me ask you a rather difficult or bold question, and that is simply this. If that had been you, would you today be in heaven or in hell? Now, I know that sounds like the kind of question only a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher would preach, but or talk about, but I, I tell you this, it is the most important question on the planet because when all is said and done, when we breathe our last, what matters more than anything else is where we spend eternity. That's what matters more than anything else. Now, I'm sure most of us would say in the room, well, if I die tonight, I hope I would be in heaven. But my question is, how do you know? How do you have certainty? How is how is it or is it possible to have assurance of salvation? That's what I want us to talk about together today. You know, a few years ago, a large number of exceedingly wealthy Americans were surveyed and asked what they would put at the top of their wish list. If they could use their money to buy anything, what would be the one thing that more than anything else that they would want to purchase? And this group of the wealthiest 1% of Americans said their number one wish list item had nothing to do with beauty or with intellect, or power, or more money, or even love and relationships, they said the number one thing on their wish list that they would buy if they could would be a guaranteed spot in heaven. And interestingly, um, the, the report went on to say that the average price these wealthy people said that they would agree to pay when they averaged out all their answers was a number roughly just a little bit under a million dollars. But you know, we don't have to pay for it, do we? Billy Graham once said that over the decades that he has ministered to numerous American presidents, the one who asked him to come to the White House most often, the one that he talked with the most, was Lyndon Johnson because, and I found this interesting, because he said Lyndon Johnson was scared of death. And so he invited Reverend Graham to come to the White House and talk to him a lot. This morning, I want us to look at the cross of Jesus this morning from the perspective of the penitent thief. You see, we've been looking at the cross from various perspectives over the last three weeks as Good Friday and Easter approach. We're within a week of both. And here in Scripture is a story that tells us how we can be assured about our place in heaven. 
And the good news is that it doesn't cost a million dollars or any other number. It is absolutely, totally free. And if this Bible account, this story that we read is believed and accepted, you can walk out of here today. All of us can walk out of here today with our head held high in confidence, with assurance that we don't have to worry about however many days we have on this earth. It doesn't matter that we can live however many we have to the fullest in absolute confidence that we are saved and, and um, going to be in heaven with Him someday. The story that I want us to look at is found in Luke chapter 23. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to it. Luke 23, uh, you can follow along on the screen if you'd like, or on the paper or bulletin insert that you have as well. But let's pick up this story. Again, we can read it in Matthew as well, but we're going to read it today from Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 33. The Bible says this, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And then we skip down to verse 39 as this part of the story picks up again. One of the criminals who hung there ins or hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Well, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about this man. In fact, we only have about a half dozen or so verses. But there is more than enough that we can learn some important truths about the assurance of salvation that I think God wants all of us to have through His Son Jesus by reading and understanding this story. In fact, I want to show you as we look at it together this morning five truths Five facts that we can see from this story about this man and how they can apply to us as well today as we look at him looking at Jesus, as we look at the cross through his perspective. The first one, if you're filling in the blanks, is this. He was a dishonest man. A dishonest man. Matthew's gospel, again, we can read this story there as well. Matthew's account of this story it identifies this guy as a robber. A robber. Evidently, he had committed a really serious version of theft as well. We're not just talking about what we might call petty theft because Exodus chapter 22 teaches that the Jewish people did not incarcerate nonviolent criminals. They didn't do, do that. If you were caught stealing, you had to make restitution up to four or even five times what you had stolen. And if you were unable to do that, you were often sold into slavery so as to be allowed to somehow... Um, repay your debt to society. But this man, interestingly, is sentenced to die by crucifixion, which does not normally fit. So deductive reasoning tells us that he must have been something worse than a typical thief. Maybe he was a habitual uh, repeat offender. Maybe he had killed someone while robbing them. But something, he must have done something that, what, that we would call over the top in this context. Even his own words support this conclusion when he said, we are getting what our deeds deserve. He acknowledged that. Now, you know, there's a sense by which all of us, if you look at it uh, the right way, all of us are dishonest people. A fifth grade teacher once asked her class, she said, young people, if if you found a briefcase filled with a million dollars in it, what would you do? 
And after a pause and some time, one of the fifth grade boys raised his hand and said, um, I, think, I think I would keep it. Unless it belonged to a poor family, then I would give it back. <laughs> That's funnier than some of you realize. You'll get it in a minute maybe. But um, poor people, million dollars. But anyway, see, we all like to think that we would be honest people, but we all tend to hedge our bets, look for ways to maybe skirt that. But Romans chapter 3, verse 10 tells us, there is no one righteous, no one, not even one. You know, I want to ask you to raise your hand in just a moment if you have never stolen anything, okay? If you have never been a thief, I'm talking you have never stolen a quarter out of your mom's purse when you were a kid. You never stole a piece of bubble gum from the grocery store or something like that. You never took a towel from a hotel, you know, you've never taken an extra dollar from the IRS than what, uh, you know, what you should. S- nothing along that line. If you, can, if you honestly can look back and go, I don't remember ever stealing anything, I want you to raise your hand really high. Come on, raise your hand really high. Really? I only see one hand up and it's mine. So what's up with it? No, I'm just, seriously, the truth is we've all broken the sixth commandment. Thou shall not steal. We all are guilty in that respect. In fact, that's why Romans chapter 3 that we're looking at goes on to say there is no difference between this guy, that guy, this lady, this lady, in that all have sinned. Somebody say the word all. All All have fallen and sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That leaves out no one. We are all guilty in that way. And so from God's perspective, we do not deserve forgiveness. We do not deserve heaven because heaven is a place of holiness and perfection. And just like the thief who died on a cross like that one, we don't measure up. Not even, not even close. Well, secondly, in addition to being a dishonest man, this man was a suffering man. Just like Jesus, he was going through the horrible agony of being crucified. Now, if you are a regular church attender, the concept of crucifixion, the terminology, we hear it frequently, and maybe it starts to kind of go in one ear and out the other, and you, you struggle or fail to really pause long enough to realize what we're talking about and how horrific it was. I mean, this man, just like Jesus, had his hands and feet literally nailed to a piece of wood. His lungs were screaming, I mean, just on fire, his legs were nodding with cramps. His, his lips were cracked, bleeding, swollen. There was no relief in sight as he waited to die. And I know many of you today are suffering as well. Not in that fashion, but in another. I, I love being a pastor. I, I really do. I enjoy it. But I'll tell you, one of the hardest parts of being a pastor is dealing with suffering and the pain that so many people deal with. We are not a large church or a huge church by many standards, at least not compared to churches in larger cities like the Springs or Denver or whatever, but we have roughly at least 500 people or so that would call impact their church home um, that are here at least semi-regularly. And as the senior pastor of this church, I talk and pray with and meet with more people that are going through hard stuff than what most of you could probably imagine. And that is just a common thing. You see, Job told told us this in chapter 5. He said, 
Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. In other words, the more people you are in relationship with, the more you know, the more suffering you are going to be part of because suffering is part of humanity. It's part of who we are. All of us struggle in this way, have to deal with it. A number of you, like my friend, our brother Ed Samberson, are dealing with that ugly word cancer firsthand right now. Maybe it's some other kind of illness or disease or sickness. And maybe it's not you. Maybe it's your spouse or your son or your daughter or other friend or relative. Others of you regularly are dealing with some other kind of stuff. Maybe it's some kind of tragedy. You, you might call or, or email or tell somebody, you know, my, my wife just left me. She says she wants a divorce. And you're devastated. Or maybe, you know, my son or my daughter broke our hearts by doing, or, or I just lost my job and I don't know what I'm going to do. You're so despondent. Some of you are suffering from the consequences of sin and poor choices, while others of you actually are suffering to no fault of your own. You just happen to be living in a broken world and I love, I want you to understand this, I love being a pastor, your pastor. I, I love helping and praying with and talking with, even crying with those who are going through difficult things. But sometimes it gets really heavy. Sometimes I have actually said, oh dear God, I don't know that I have it in me as just a regular human guy. I don't know that I have it in me to be able to handle much more of that. Can you please? And, um, and a lot of that is because of experiences I've had. The experiences that I have have taught me that unfortunately, sadly, not everybody, but a, a pretty high percentage of people, when they really struggle and when they suffer, end up being like this guy, who not only was a suffering man, he was also, thirdly, a bitter man, a very bitter man. And you go, well, how do you know that? That doesn't fit with what we just read. Well, because Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 44, tells us this. In the same way, this is at the beginning of the story, in the same way the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At first, both of these criminals were all about shaking their fist and saying mean things and taunting Jesus. Um, a brother and friend of mine named Mike Reynolds. Mike, are you in the room uh, somewhere? There he is in the back, back there. Mike Reynolds is a great man. And I'll tell you more about his uh, story at the end of the service because I want you to come out and talk to him. He's doing a great thing for people that are in prison. And um, anyway, Mike has a big heart for those who are incarcerated, in particular those that are in Buena Vista. He spends a lot of time over there helping people. And um, I called and talked with him about that and some other things this week. And as I was talking to him on the phone, I asked him, Mike, is it common for convicts in prison to harass newly admitted prisoners? And he said, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's common for prisoners to spew out their cynicism on the new guy. You know, sometimes it's because there's something to get out of that. You can manipulate that guy or, or woman and, and get them to do something in return for you. But other times it's not for that. It's simply just to be mean, just simply to tear somebody else down or, or scare them and therefore in a way help you kind of forget about your own stuff or make you feel better about what you're dealing with. Anyway, in this same way, both of these thieves, according to Scripture, spewed out their cynicism on Jesus initially. They were both bitter. You've probably heard before that suffering can make you better. 
That is true, that if you allow God to help you, He can help you grow through what you go through. It's very true. But also, in many cases, rather than allow God to lead us down that path, rather than allow suffering to make us better, it a lot of times is something we allow to make us bitter. I've seen that many, many times. I've seen it harden people's hearts, lead people to get angry with God, shake their fists, blame Him, question why, and heard people say things like, don't talk to me about Christianity. My, my child was born with Down syndrome. Or don't talk to me about the Lord's love. I've been praying for years that He would lead me to the right person to get married to, and I'm still single. Or, or maybe I did find and marry the love of my life, and then they left me, or they died tragically. Don't tell me about God's love. You know, after all ten of Job's children were killed, all ten of them, and after he lost all of his wealth and his health broke as well, he said this in chapter 7 of his book, Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. One angry, bitter woman who believed in God but didn't have much good to say about him once was quoted to say, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you don't have many. The truth is, our thinking and our perspective can get very distorted when we are in pain, when we are suffering. Mac Owen or, or Lee Chapin or anybody else in leadership and Celebrate Recovery would be quick to tell you that, that hurt people hurt people. It is a common thing to see hurting people turn around and hurt other people. And in the same way, the thief was initially bitter and quick to lash out at Jesus. But I want you to notice something in our story that we're looking at. Notice that Jesus did not yell back or return venom with venom. He didn't even scold or rebuke this guy. And why is that? I think it's because he understood how this man felt. Because Jesus was hurting too. And because of what he was going through, he had compassion like no one else. Maybe you're hurting and you're frustrated right now for one reason or another. If that's you, I want to encourage you to look at the cross. Imagine your Savior Jesus dying on it for you. And remember as you stare at it that there is no such thing as loneliness or pain, or stress that we ever undergo that Jesus does not understand. The book of Hebrews tells us that very clearly. Verse 15 of chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He's just like us, and yet totally different than us. Jesus sees you. He sees you and He cares about what you're dealing with. He sees you just as much as He sees the, the thief who was dying on the cross. He sees you just as much as He saw the crowds of His day. In fact, in Matthew 9 we read, When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion for them. In fact, if you just turn the page from there, Two chapters later in Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, based on this compassion. Come to me, all you who are weary 
and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus sees you, and he feels what you feel. And his invitation is for you as well, not just this thief or people like him, but all of us, even if you like this thief, are struggling with bitterness. Jesus loves you and is there for you just as he was for this man. But you know what? Something happened that changed this thief. He became a totally different guy. In just a matter of hours, he went from one guy to being a totally different guy. Sometime between 9 a.m. when Jesus was crucified and noon when the Bible tells us that the earth became black, this man dying on the cross beside Jesus completely changed his attitude, his tone toward Jesus. He became, fourthly, if you're filling in the blanks, he became a repentant man. Now, why is that? What would make him change his tune so much? Well, I think there's one main reason, and that is that he had watched Jesus with his own eyes for three hours in pain, suffering on his way toward death. You see, you can tell a lot about somebody when they're under stress, when they are dying. And this man had watched Jesus, and he learned a lot from his example. I don't know, but I think when he heard and saw Jesus say those famous words of, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I think it blew him away. I mean, who says that? I think when he, when he saw Jesus and noticed that Jesus had endured horrible physical pain without profanity, I think it touched him. I think when he saw Jesus enduring taunting without retaliating, when he saw him get spit on and he didn't spit back, I think it blew him away. And it led him to go, you know what? This guy is not just a guy. He is indeed who he says he is. He is the Son of God. And he put his faith in him. He trusted in him when he knew just that much about him. And he repented. Jesus' death was so distinctive in so many ways that this man became convinced that he truly was the Son of God. And he modeled for us what we need to do by being a man of repentance. In fact, let me show you four indications of genuine repentance, what that looks like according to the story we see with this guy. Four things about his story that I think should apply to all of us. Four indications of genuine repentance. Number one would be respect for God's authority. The Bible tells us that this man rebuked the other criminal who, unlike the one who changed, continued to hurl insults at Jesus. And he said to that guy, he said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? In other words, don't you have any respect? I mean, what if he really is who he says he is? Show some respect. I think you should fear the possibility that he is who he says he is. Proverbs chapter 9 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, some say that we should not teach others to fear God. We should just talk about His love and His grace, which are beautiful, but we should just leave out that fear part. I don't think we should talk about it. Some people say that, and yet I would say that respect is the foundation of love. In fact, the second verse of that famous song, Amazing Grace, which we will sing in a little while, the second verse, as you will sing, says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? To fear." To fear and grace my fears relieved. I think the first step of repentance is respect, even fear of God. Fear in the sense that we have awe and reverence for who He is. 
We need to understand that we cannot conquer or control death, that every single one of us will someday stand before our Maker and face the judgment day. Every one of us. A second clear thing, an indication of genuine repentance based on this guy's story is admittance of sin. Notice he admitted, he said, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He didn't make excuses or downplay the situation. He admitted that he was a mess, a sinner, someone who deserved death. Unlike those that we all know, we've probably all been here as well, the person who is quick to to make excuses and you know, always has some explanation for why they've done what they've done. Oh, that's that person's fault. Well, it's because I was raised this way. Well, it's because, you know, those other people, or I couldn't help because. As opposed to, or compared to the humble person who owns their mistakes and, and is quick to admit their mistakes, their sin, their guilt. Listen to what God says about this in, in Isaiah 66. He says, This is the one, the person that I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Like this thief, we need to be quick to admit when we mess up, quick to admit sin. Thirdly, another uh, indication of genuine repentance that we see in this guy is believing rightly about Jesus. He at one point said, this man has done nothing wrong, which is in total contrast to what he did at the beginning. Remember, as Matthew said, he was hurling insults along with the other guy initially, and then he changes his tune and, and believes rightly about God or about Jesus. And he says, this man has done nothing wrong. You know, the word repentance in the, uh, in the Greek, where we get our New Testament from, that, uh, that word is metanoia, um, meta meaning change. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. The other half of that original Greek word is all about the mind. And so repentance in many ways is about changing the mind, learning to think correctly. If this thief who died on the cross was here today and we could interview him, I think he would probably say, you know, initially I thought Jesus was a phony, you know, a scoundrel, a crook just like me and the other guy, you know, no different. But then my opinion changed because, and he would explain why, say, now I think differently about him because he now believes rightly about Jesus. He changed his thinking. And Jesus said in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes, you could say rightly, he who believes rightly in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die in the spiritual sense. The fourth indication of genuine repentance that we see here, though, is humble trust in Jesus. The most important part, to totally trust in Jesus. And we see that with this thief. He said, Jesus, and I think we could even insert the implied word, please. Jesus, please, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. You know, the Greek word for repentance also means to turn your direction, to go in a new direction. We need, like this thief, to learn to not trust our heart or our gut or our instinct. We need to learn to trust Jesus and walk in a new direction. That's what this guy modeled for us. You know, I find it interesting that no one else at Golgotha, at least other than in a mocking way, nobody else other than this thief addressed Jesus as a king. This dying, humble thief saw Jesus maybe more accurately than anybody else because of his humility and his willingness to change his way of thinking. 
And his story is a picture of true repentance, like what we see in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, when the Bible says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, and so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So, as a result of his genuine repentance, he also was, most importantly, finally, fifthly, he was a saved Man, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He was a saved man, and he was saved in three ways. He was saved from hell, he was saved to heaven, and he was saved by grace. Let's talk about that for just a minute. He was saved from hell, which is not a popular topic to talk about today. People don't like to talk about hell, probably never have, really. But even less so today, it's becoming politically incorrect. In fact, the popular notion today, even in a lot of churches, is that hell is just a figurative thing. It doesn't exist. It's not what Scripture teaches. Not at all. This man was saved from hell. Not just saved from financial collapse or from embarrassment or from injury or the things that we often talk about. I need somebody to save me from. Now, he was saved from hell, a real place, a terrible place. A very scary place. There are lots of passages in Scripture, if we had more time, we would look at together that talk about hell, the reality of it. But Jesus said this in Luke 12. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. We tend to, we tend to think, well, what's the worst somebody could do? Kill me, right? That's the worst thing. No, that's not the worst thing. Because Jesus says, no, I tell you, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The worst thing that can happen to you in life is not that you are just killed. It would be that you die and then are lost forever in hell. That's the worst possible scenario. See, we're all going to die. Hebrews 9.27 makes that very clear. Unless Jesus comes back while we're still walking the earth, we will all die. That's not the worst thing. The worst thing is that we would end up spending eternity in hell, a real place, a terrible place that the Bible describes in detail in numerous places. And the thief was one heartbeat away from dying and ending up in hell for all eternity. But, but because of repentance, he went from being saved from hell to being, to being saved for heaven. Because Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What a contrast. Hell on one side, paradise on the other. A couple of the scriptures, several that I shared numerous times with our brother Ed um, over the last couple of weeks as his time on earth seemed to be slipping away. We, wanted, we talked about heaven and I shared with him some of my favorites like when scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, and no mind has even imagined what God has prepared for us. And what God tells us in Revelation 21, that, that at that time he will, there, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And I said, you know, Ed, as we think about heaven, you know, you, you are a, uh, an engineer. You've seen a lot of cool things be built and, and uh, imagined and, and dreamed up and sketched out and all that. You've heard names like Steven Spielberg and Jules Verne and others that, you know, have incredible imaginations and can, can fathom and do great things. And do you know what the Bible teaches? There is not a single person on this planet, an engineer or movie maker or author or whatever, there's not a single person on this planet that ever has or ever will be able to even imagine what God has 
prepared for us in heaven. Wow, it's going to literally be off the chart, beyond what any of us can even fathom. And this thief, just like our brother Ed, is enjoying what is beyond our comprehension right now. And we can know that we're going to be there as well someday. But it's not because any of us deserve it. That guy, that thief, is there not because he deserved it, not because he earned it. You see, he was saved from hell. He was saved to heaven, but he was saved by grace. Scripture is so clear about that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift. Somebody say the word gift. It is the gift. You didn't earn it. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This man wasn't saved by living a good life. He lived a horrible life. That's why he's dying on a cross at this point. He didn't earn salvation. He didn't and couldn't have, no matter what he would have had in his pocket. He didn't pay for it. He couldn't have, even if he had a million or a hundred million dollars, it wouldn't have mattered because we cannot earn it or buy it or deserve it. We are saved only by God's grace. A few weeks ago, um, several of the elders and I went and talked with Ed, spent some time talking and praying with him in his home. And, um, and he kind of surprised us in that he just opened up and said that he was nervous, that he wasn't totally sure if he'd lived a good enough life, if God was going to let him into heaven. I don't know if I've been good enough. And we all said the same thing. We said, Ed, you're right. You're not good enough, but neither are we. None of us are good enough. It's not about being good enough. If it, if it was about being good enough, we'd all be doomed because none of us are righteous. No one is, is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being saved isn't about being good. It's about being forgiven. None of us are even close to being good enough. None of us have, as we already saw, even been able to keep the sixth commandment, let alone all the others. Being saved is about accepting God's gift. that He talks about in Scripture, His gift through faith. The only thing we can do is swallow our pride, which is a tall order for some, for many of us, but to swallow our pride and repent of our sin and then accept His free gift and just simply say, oh Lord, thank you. That's what we do. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We can't buy it. Now, the way this thief expressed his faith or responded to that gift was to do the one thing he could do, the only thing he really could do. Undoubtedly, it was hard for him, but he spoke up. He spoke up, not necessarily with what we would call the perfect words, although I guess they were perfect in that they were just simply his words. They were from his heart. He said in verse 42, Jesus, again, I think we can insert the word please, I think that's the inference. Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the way we follow his example today and express our faith and our trust in our Savior Jesus who died on the cross for us as much as he died for him that day is to simply do two things. Now, it's not about earning anything. It's not about works. It's not about getting to heaven by doing something. It's not that at all. But we respond to... This gift that God has given us in two ways, by expressing our faith in Him, by first of all, Scripture teaches, by confessing our faith as well, verbally, just as He did, confessing that Jesus is Lord with all of our heart as well. Scripture tells us in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, you will be saved. And secondly, we need to express our faith in Him by being baptized into Him. Mark 16, 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, some people like to just focus on the first of those two verses and, and might even say, well, wait a minute, the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized, so I, how does, doesn't that seem to be in conflict with what the Scripture says there? They say, no, not at all, for two reasons. For one thing, he could not be baptized. It was literally physically impossible. He's nailed to a cross. But secondly, probably more importantly, he was not under the New Covenant in the New Testament. He was under the Old Testament law or covenant. The New Covenant didn't begin until Jesus died and then rose from the grave. And most of all, I would tell you, just have, you need to have the right mindset. Baptism is not a have-to thing. It is a get-to thing. What I tell people all the time, if they're kind of hesitating or asking questions about baptism, I just say, you know, look. If Jesus, the way I look at it is this, if Jesus can die on a cross for me, literally die being nailed to a cross, why would I ever even hesitate for a moment to do anything He asks me to do? And He clearly asks us to be baptized. Before we go home today, I want to ask you if you would to stand with me for a minute. Before the band comes, I want, I want you to stand with me. We're going to sing a song of invitation in a moment. It's that song that is so famous, Amazing Grace. And I want to invite everyone that is in the room, anyone in the room that has never surrendered their life to the Lord and just said, Lord, I'm all yours. Or maybe you've never been baptized. To do so today. Why not today? Today is the day of salvation. We've got warm, a warm baptistry. We've got clothes. We've got a towel. We've even got hair dryers for people like me that need that kind of thing. Got it all figured out and ready for you. Why not today? But before we sing, I want to point out one more thing about this dying man on the cross, and that is this, that he did not set the best example for us. Think about this. Because he waited till the very last moment, right before he died, to put his faith in Jesus. And if you if any of us wait till our very last breath, if we try to do that, two reasons that's a terrible way to approach the situation. One is because you will miss out on all kinds of joy and peace and, and opportunities to serve and grow and walk with Him. I mean, being a Christian is a beautiful thing. But even more importantly, I would tell you this, waiting till the last moment is a terrible thing because you don't know when the last moment will be. You could get hit by a car on the way home today from church. You could die tonight in your sleep. None of us are promised tomorrow, but we all can have assurance of salvation before we walk out of here today by simply trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledging Him and taking Him at His word, doing what He asks us to do. We can all, like Ed, have a confident hope of heaven. And I want to say, when I say hope, I don't mean, oh, I hope. That's what I tried to really explain to Ed. Ed, you don't need to hope. You can have a confident hope as in an assurance, a, a confidence, a, a, an absolute conviction that you are saved and going to spend, you know, that your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven. First John chapter 5, I love this, tells us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may hope, no, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
that you may know without any doubt that you have eternal life. The thief, this dying thief who blasphemed Jesus just a few hours before, died and went to heaven for all eternity to be with Jesus and knew that. And you can know it as well if you simply take him at his word. Whether you've lived a notorious, horrible life, maybe like the thief, or, or maybe, you know, the worst thing you've ever done is, is um, steal a quarter out of your mom's purse when you were a kid. Either way, I, I know two things about you. One is this. You are just like me and Ed and that thief. You don't deserve it. You do not deserve heaven. You cannot get in based on your own righteousness, your own merit. You cannot. But the other thing I know about you is that you don't have to. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to. We don't have to be good enough. We just have to surrender to the Lord and say, God, I'm all yours. And take him at his word. Do what he asks us to do, which is to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Peter said in Acts 2.38. You know, as we get ready to sing, let me tell you this. If I died tonight and I was standing before Jesus, you know, at the front gate of heaven, and he said, Scott, why should I let you into my heaven? I'll tell you what I would not say. I would not say, well, um, you know, God, you remember that when you helped me get that very first job as a little fifth grade boy and I started tithing, I've, I've continued to tithe out of the first 10% of what I have ever since then. It's true, but I wouldn't tell him that. I wouldn't tell him, well, Lord, I've been honoring you and serving you as a pastor for some almost 30 years now. Or, or God, I've been married almost 25 years and I've been faithful to my wife and, and, and honored her all these years. I wouldn't tell him any of that. I would simply stand before him, probably on my knees actually, and just say, Lord God, I'm a sinner. And nothing to this table do I bring, but to that cross I only cling. And Lord, I'm all yours. I'm at your mercy. But I know he would then look at me and say, Scott, today you will be with me in paradise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because you're good enough, but because you are forgiven. Because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That whosoever believes, I mean really believes and confesses and repents, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life in paradise like that thief. So I want us to sing that song, Amazing Grace. And as we do, I pray that God's Holy Spirit would melt all of our hearts. And if there's anyone here today who's never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, why not today? Why not today? Maybe you are consumed with bitterness about XYZ situation and you need to come. You've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you need to come and pray with somebody or maybe just kneel and just say, oh, dear God, help me with and let somebody pray with you and help you. Maybe, maybe it's some other issue that's coming between you and the Lord and you just need to say, Lord, I just need to repent and come clean and deal with this issue. But whatever it is, His amazing grace is there for all of us. And our chains can be gone as we're going to sing if we will just trust Him and take Him at His word. Will you join us? Let's do that together. Let's sing it together with all of our heart. And you come. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.